So we're going to begin this evening in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, we're beginning in verse 2 because uh, but verse 1 really belongs with the content of chapter 1. So we'll begin in verse 2 and read through the end of the chapter. God says to his people Israel, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her remove her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her forth as on the day when she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a dry land and put her to death with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build up a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. So she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go and I will return to my first husband for it was better for me than, than now. Now she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and multiplied silver and gold for her, which they used for bail. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also deliver my wool and my flax from them, given to cover her nakedness. So now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, No one will deliver her out of my hand. I will also cease all her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed times. And I will make desolate her vines and and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. So I will visit the days of the bales upon her, when she used to offer offerings and smoke to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and go after her lovers so that she forgot me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak to her heart. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt And it will be in that day, declares Yahweh, that you will call me Ishi and no longer call me Baali. So I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be remembered by their names no more. And in that day, I will cut a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make them lie down in security and I will betroth you to me forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know Yahweh, and it will be in that day that I will answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth, and the earth will answer the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. 
And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Amen. This is God's word. Well, it's a bit difficult to simply launch into chapter 2, verse 2. We are suddenly brought into a very unseemly scene of adultery and of a, a, a husband who is incensed and jealous and, and uh, hurt, wronged. He's bringing forward his case. And, of course, God had asked and called, rather commanded, a young prophet named Hosea to go and to marry a woman, Gomer, who, who would be a harlot. And there's debate as to whether she was a harlot when he went and saw her or was afterwards. And it's really irrelevant. The issue is that Hosea was painfully called to enter into the covenant of marriage with a woman that God knew and Hosea apparently knew would be unfaithful to him. And the whole purpose of that was that Hosea's marriage would be an illustration of Israel, the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. Now there's a few cautions I want to issue up front. Um, This marriage is an illustration and we see God here in chapter 2 saying some rather stark and drastic things about his adulterous wife, Israel. And I want to caution you that in no way, shape, or form here is there uh, somehow instruction as to husbands or wives, for that matter, are to treat unfaithful spouses. If you do that, you are taking a simple um, illustration beyond what God intended. Why does God use marriage as an illustration or a representation of his covenant love for his people. Of Israel and Judah of old, of the church in the New Testament. Why? It's for this simple reason. Very simple. The most binding, irrevocable covenant between and among men and women that God made is the covenant of marriage. It's the most foundational covenant of society. And there's other covenants that God's entered into. I understand that. So what God does, though, is he takes this most foundational, essential covenant that is is binding. I mean, if you're married here tonight at your, your, your ceremony, you said something like, till death do us part. That's serious. As my father-in-law said to me when I sat down uh, as a young 22-year-old man to ask if he would permit me to marry his daughter named Carissa, and he said yes, but he said, he looked me square in the eye, and he said, just so you understand, there's no back door. And so that's the simple purpose of of this. Don't get weird. Don't go off on tangents about, you know, God being the husband of Israel or Christ, the husband of the church. It's simply and wonderfully used by God to teach and illustrate his covenant love for his people and how his people are to be faithful to him as a wife is to be faithful to her husband or a husband is to be faithful to his wife. 
I must address just one other concern that I, I addressed a few weeks ago, but uh, I heard recently of someone who, who mentioned, well, why is it that often in the Bible it seems like the women are presented as the, as the bad ones? Here it is, Gomer, and she's the harlot, and Hosea, the man, is the good guy. And I remind you again, dear brothers and sisters, that for a few years now we've been studying First Kings and Second Kings, and in First and Second Kings, except for Jezebel, by and large, it's been a whole line of ungodly, vile, wretched, wicked men. So I just caution you against that too. Don't get caught up in that argument. If, if, I mean, if we really want to tally it, how many, how many men does God present in a bad light in the Bible? How many women does God, uh, it's just silly and foolish, and it's really a concern of our age. So with that aside, uh, God is making, not making any statement about men or women in this situation. It is simply and powerfully an illustration of the seriousness of Israel's idolatry and breaking of her covenant with her God, who is Yahweh. God had taken Israel. He had taken Israel to himself, not because Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants were particularly impressive or or, or amazing among the nations of the earth, not at all. It was purely out of his, his gracious, sovereign love that he chose Israel. And he called Israel, the nation, out of Israel, out of bondage, you know. He cared for Israel in the wilderness, and in spite of her idolatry there even, he brought her all the way through Egypt, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, ultimately into the land. And remember that God had made a covenant with Israel about the land. The land is not incidental. It's part of, uh, yes, it, it really is the promised land. God had promised a piece of geography, dirt, land with rivers and, and water and bodies of water and fields and so forth to his people, to this nation. And unfortunately, Israel and in the north and Judah in the south had a long history of violating the covenant. God had commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. Israel, particularly in the north, we've learned, had numerous idols. I mean, Baals, Asherahs, on and on it went. Um, and Judah in the south is, is also guilty of idolatry, but maybe it's just lagging behind Israel a little bit. Hosea will have some things to say to Judah, but in particular here he's addressing uh, the nation of Israel in the north. So that's by way of introduction. Um, this is a, a stark and stunning um, uh, metaphor or uh, this marriage metaphor to illustrate God's love for his people, his covenant love for his people. And so first of all, in verse 2, let's consider God's holy love. His love, Yahweh's love, is a holy love. And this God, again, I remind you, is our God. So we're learning about not only the God of Israel, but we're learning about our God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, our triune God. He is a holy God with a holy love. In our present time, we... Uh, our churches, evangelical churches, we rightly emphasize the love of God. We just sang about it tonight, and we should, because it is a major theme of the Bible. But today, 
We hear a lot of talk about the love of God, but very little about his holiness. And uh, an author that I, a theologian I really appreciate, David Wells, you've heard me mention him before, he wrote a book a few years back about God's holy love. And his love is a holy love. So anything that is contrary to God's holiness is not in keeping with his love. And you'll hear sometimes among Christians, well, well, you know, in the name of grace, we should, you know, we shouldn't be too concerned or, or hard about sin because after all, God is loving as though God somehow in his love is contrary to his holiness. Nothing could be further from the truth. His holiness and his love are in absolute perfect harmony because he is one, not divided. So his love is a holy love. In chapter 2, verse 2, he's saying to the children of Israel, and Israel here is is likened to a mother, to, to the wife, contend with her for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove her harlotry from her face and adultery from between her breasts. That's very stark language. Makes us a little uncomfortable, maybe. But what God here is clearly indicating is that he is not going to go along with Israel into her wanton, ongoing, unrepentant idolatry. He is faithful. He will not fail but he will not move from his holiness. Churches think too often that, that somehow in the name of grace and love, we can shift the standard and because God loves us and because he, he'll, he'll stick with us, he won't move. So the further we or any church or any people move from the ways of God and the commands of God, we are moving away from Christ. And so it's very stark here. God's love is a holy love. Of course, we learn at the end of the chapter, God is going to renew and restore Israel. He, his love really will win at the end of the day. But in the meantime, he is concerned about his own holiness so much so that he is issuing a certificate of divorce. She is not my wife and I am not her husband. He's, he's distancing himself from Israel. And of course that happened finally when the Assyrians came and hauled Israel off. And to this day, uh, the specific tribes of northern Israel have not been reconstituted. That will happen But God has distanced himself from the nation. And as Paul, the apostle, said, a partial hardening has happened. So there is, in God's holiness, a a distancing with the unrepentant apostasy and idolatry of Israel. And he's calling for her to remove. It's a gracious but firm call for repentance. Sounds a lot like what Jesus issues in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to the various churches. This is serious business. And um, our sin, our turning away from the Lord, our going after lesser things like entertainment or, or even churches caring more about, uh, listen carefully how I say this, 
churches caring more about who comes through the door than the Lord of the church is a subtle form of adultery. Um, I hope you hear, even in our prayer time, we love people. We are, to, we are sent by Christ to make disciples. We love people in his name, but our church was only faithful insofar as there is one person supremely who we are loyal to. And if everyone out there doesn't want anything to do with him or his ways, we don't change. We don't take polls on what people are looking for in church. We don't care what sinners want the church to be. There's only one head and Lord of the church, and it's Jesus Christ. So, so God is, his love is a holy love. Secondly tonight, in verses 3 through 13, God's love is a confronting, jealous love. It's a confronting, jealous love. The language continues in stark language. And again here, remember that the wife at this point is not Gomer. God is not suggesting a way as to how Hosea is to treat Gomer. He's using, again, the illustration of marriage and then the the two parties in this passage is the nation of Israel and her children and God, Yahweh. And so Yahweh, first of all, he is going to, in his jealousy, he is going to judge and strip Israel. Israel will be stripped. And this is, at the time Hosea is ministering, Jer- they're in the day of Jeroboam too. That's uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And I you may not remember, but he had a long reign of some, uh, I believe it was 52 years. I mean, he, he was and is a successful king. And Israel in the north, it was in the days of Jeroboam, the very days that Hosea was ministering, that Israel in the north had its greatest wealth, its greatest apparent peace, its greatest comfort was in the days that Hosea was ministering. Greater than the days of Ahab and Jezebel. And it's in these days that God is saying, because of all your idolatry and worship of other gods, you may seem rich now, but I'm going to strip you naked as on the day when you were born. And uh, very severe. And, and of course, Israel would be stripped, stripped of all her leadership, stripped of all her wealth, stripped of all her prestige, stripped, stripped of her renown. In fact, actually, the land would be stripped of its identity because Israel, the Assyrians hauled the Israelites in the north off, and then they brought foreign peoples in to fill the land. And even some 800 years later, in the days of Jesus, the people in that area were called Samaritans because they were mixed with the peoples that the Assyrians had brought in, and so their identity was lost. They were stripped, Israel in the north. And so God was going to, Israel be stripped. In verses 4 and 5, God says he will have no compassion on Israel's children because they're children of harlotry. And their mother has played the harlot. And so this is, this is pretty fierce. Um, sometimes folks think that they can um, somehow manipulate God, that they can use his compassion against him. Uh, and I, I've seen this, and it's, it's a gross thing. Um, 
thinking that the attributes of God can be played against him. Don't do that. He's a loving God. No one is compassionate as him. But if a nation or a church persists and persists and persists and persists in spiritual adultery, God will come to a place where he, for a time, may have no compassion. And through the Assyrians and the judgment on Israel, there was no compassion. And, and some people may say, well, that's rather harsh of God. He was patient for some 200 years, sending his prophets, calling them. You remember, um, you remember the prophets and their ministry, and he was patient. So she, he will uh, bereave Israel of her children, and that would happen through the Assyrians. And then in verse 6, six and 7, Israel will be frustrated and hemmed in. God is going to hedge up her way. Israel, again, is wealthy at this point, thinking that pretty much she can do whatever she wants, and God's actually going to frustrate Israel. He's actually going to frustrate uh, the nation. He's going to hem her in. He's going to keep her from actually being successful in pursuing her lovers. And so he's going to thwart them. And God can do this with churches. He can actually frustrate churches. He can thwart them. If we're not being faithful to the Lord and the basics, we can pray all we want about some of the desires of our heart, but God will not answer. He will hem us in until we realize our error and turn to him. And so his love is a confronting and jealous love. And his complaint in verses 8 through 13 is that in all of her wealth, Israel in the north attributed it to Baal and not to Yahweh. Baal was known to be the god of fertility, the god who gave the grain and the, the harvest and so forth. And, and of course, it was God who gave it all. And so he is, he is bringing forward his case and, sent, and basically giving evidence of how in through hundreds of years, Israel in the north had given credit and thanks to Baal for all of the benefits she had received. So God is, verse 13, going to visit the days of the Baals upon her. Serious stuff. The love of God is a confronting, jealous love. And we ought to love him for that. It's severe. It's frightening. But we ought to love him, that he loves his people so much that he maintains his holy love and that he loves his people so much that he will confront us and that he will act in his jealousy. This is real love. And and as an aside, in the church, as we love one another, if we are never willing to humbly confront one another, if there is real sin, then whatever we say is love is not love. Because love cares that much that we will go to great lengths to help a brother or sister not err. So thirdly and finally tonight in verses 14 to 23, 
God's love is a holy love. It's a confronting, jealous love. And thirdly, it is a love that will restore and renew. A love that will restore and renew. Interesting that chapter 2 ends much like chapter 1. Chapter 1, like chapter 2, begins with judgment, a scene of adultery, but ends with a promise that God will restore and renew the nation of Israel in the last days. The nation of Israel and in chapter 1, verse 11, the sons of Judah. And again, our church is uh, committed to just taking what God says here about a future for Israel. And, and we see no reason to somehow translate this language to the New Testament church. God is faithful to Israel. And what we learn here is we learn of the same God who loves us. And we learn of the love of God. And we who are the church, Christ's bride, should be greatly encouraged because this is the God who loves us as well. So here's what God will do in the last days. Notice the future tense, verse 14, I will allure her. Then, verse 15, verse 16, it will be in that day. In that day is almost like like code language in the Old Testament for a reference to the last days and the days of restoration. First, in this future days, Yahweh will allure Israel, bring her into the wilderness. Israel, to this present day, is hardened largely against God has little interest in in her king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that day, God will woo Israel. And though it may be a small remnant in the last day, there will be a, a transformation of a remnant of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the last days. And God will lure her, allure her, um, and speak to her heart. Isn't that precious? Verse 14, God speaks to the heart of a people. It's precious, tender language. Verse 15, the Lord, Yahweh, will replace their pain, their achor, uh, with joy. With joy. Achor means trouble. The valley of achor was where there was a scene of, of judgment in Israel's past, in the days of Joshua. And that valley of Achor will be turned from a valley of trouble into a door of hope. Uh, Again, God is dealing with the land. Um, You know, and I don't know how to spiritualize that. Uh, There's others uh, maybe smarter than me that, uh, but you know, we know at the valley of Achor, it was a place and it's a land. and, And God is going to deal with his people in the last days in the land. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. In other words, Israel that has experienced the judgment of God and known tears beyond telling in the last days will know joy to the point that it wells up in a song. She will sing as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt after being in bondage and slavery for hundreds of years. God will replace her trouble, her achor with joy. Verse 16, the Lord will be her husband. It is his precious language, verse 16. It'll be in that day, says Yahweh, that you will call me Ishi. It's a, it's a term of affection, meaning my husband, my husband, not my master. I mean, God is our master and God is our Lord, 
That's what Baal means, my, my Lord or my master, um, my Baal. And in the last days, Yahweh will be called by Israel, my husband. In other words, that Israel in the last days will relate to God finally in a loving relationship and understand his affection and care for her, is she? And so I will remove the names of the Baals, verse 17. This means this is the hope of God will renew Israel and remove false worship. During the millennium, when Christ reigns on this earth, that thousand years, there will be no false worship found among Israel or upon, among any nation. And you can count on it. It's going to happen. After all these years of, of false worship of the Baals and, and these days of a, of a works, works religion, based salvation based by works, in the last days, there will be true worship of God, true worship of Christ by Israel Yahweh, in verses 18 through 20, the Lord will make a new covenant with Israel in the last days. And this is exactly what Jeremiah the prophet says, that God will make a new covenant with them. This is exactly what God says through the prophet Isaiah. This is exactly what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. God, in the last days, will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the covenant he made at Mount Sinai that depended upon their covenant obedience, but the new covenant that is founded upon God's Love is a unilateral covenant. And you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, King of Israel, as Gentiles, we enjoy now the new covenant first. The mystery of God's plan, the church enjoys that new covenant. But the day is coming when God is going to renew the heart of a remnant of Israel and they will, Judah and Israel, Enjoy the new covenant. And at the heart of that new covenant is what God will do in changing the nation's heart. He will give a time of peace. And verse 18 describes the millennium. I don't know what other time it describes. Um, I, I, uh, this is a very um, clear language. And there has not taken, there's not been any time where this has happened. And I don't think this just expresses the eternal state. This is this is what is described by Isaiah in that thousand-year period, a time of peace on earth. But at the heart of this hopeful new covenant is not only peace on earth, but is a new heart for Israel, in which, verse 20, Israel will be betrothed to Yahweh in faithfulness. In other words, God will take the faithless heart of Israel and turn it into a faithful heart, and then they will know Yahweh, as Jeremiah says, from the greatest to the least of them will know the Lord. Know him not just intellectually, but know him in the heart. And in that knowledge there, um, the language is there is used of a husband and wife when they knew each other. It speaks of, of the love and the intimacy of the marriage, which is... Um, which is uh, entered into by physical union. And so this is language of, in other words, Israel will go from having a, a cold, formal relationship with the Lord to entering into a true, loving, spiritual relationship with the Lord. And finally, in verses 21 through 23, the Lord will go from 
in his holiness, distancing himself from the nation of Israel, essentially divorcing Israel and issuing a divorce, a writ of divorce, to owning them. He says, in that day, I will say to those, verse 23, who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. God will own his people on the promised land. Again, um, this is verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. And that's not just an allusion to just nice language. The land is essential to God's dealings with Israel. He made a promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would be inheritors of a certain piece of land. And during the millennial reign of Christ, they will, God will give them that land in fullness. The promise will be fulfilled and they will love the Lord and God will own them as his people. What a love God's love is. A holy love, a confronting, jealous love, and a renewing and a restoring love. Now, what do we do with this? This is God's dealings with Israel, and some would make application directly to the church. Um, Well, I'm suggesting that we don't, so how does this apply to us? We understand that God deals with Israel in this way, and that he's going to renew them in the last days. And I've already indicated, I think, uh, our, our way of application. This God is our God, the one and same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 5, you of course know that husbands in verse 25 are to love their wives. Why? Because Christ loves the church and Christ gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God still cares about covenant faithfulness among his people. He wants the love of his bride. He wants the worship of his church. He wants his people, as we learned in Second Peter this morning, to know him, to live in moral excellence, not because of a way to, to be saved, but because they are saved. God longs for this among his people. And Jesus, at times, must issue warnings to the churches that wander. But this is a call to our covenant faithfulness. That we examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are, am, I, am, I, am I being faithful to the Lord? Are we being faithful to the Lord? Are we loving him? Do we relate to him in kind of a cold, formal way? Or is he ishy to the church? We love him. Does, does he know that we love him? You know, one of the reasons we have an evening service in my mind, in my heart, my mind, my heart, there's no thou shalt have an evening service. But just one of the reasons that I have is I, I want God to know we love him. Everybody knows you have to go to church at least once a week. I mean, what religion doesn't? It's kind of compulsory. I'm not saying Sunday morning is compulsory, but I'm saying, but, but you know, 
but to come back when you're tired and you don't feel like it on a Sunday evening? Why would you do that? Because I love him? Because we love him? Just one of the reasons. Do we love him? Do we love the husband of the church? And if so, let's live for him. But mostly, I want to close by just rejoicing with you in the covenant love of our God. That when we are faithless, he still remains faithful. What a God we have. Let's pray. God, we are shocked a bit by the links you go to to show your people how jealous your love is. Teach your church in this day about your jealous love. Woo us from other idols and gods that we've set up in our hearts and our lives. Bring us back to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we know Jesus in love and in intimacy and in joy. And, oh God, we want you to know we rejoice that in the last days you are going to renew a remnant of Israel and Judah. And we rejoice at the thought that you are going to take this nation that is so hardened against you and that you are going to fulfill every single one of your covenant promises. Oh, how we long for that day. Until then, find us among your faithful. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.